Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Friends, we are coming out of a crazy event in St. Petersburg. Our good pal Jerry Siddeth, who puts the questions together for us each week, tells me we have nearly 50 questions and about 2,500 words contained within those submissions across Twitter, Facebook, and Lord knows where else. Oh boy, as it should, knowing all that just took place in Florida. I want to say a big thank you to all of y'all for sending in those great questions, to Jerry, obviously, for putting them together. Also say a huge thanks to those who support us and are great, great advocates for what we do, that being Cooper Tires, powering the USF Championships, presented by not only Cooper Tires, but presented by Anderson Promotions, had the opening events for two of the three USF Championship classes at St. Petersburg. Big thank you as well to the Justice Brothers, makers of automotive chemicals and lubricants, those of which also get used in motor racing across IndyCar, sports cars, NASCAR, drag racing, rallying, everywhere. And then finally, TorontoMotorsports.com, motor racing memorabilia, t-shirts, stickers, hats, models, books, you name it. Pay a visit to TorontoMotorsports.com. All right. I've got about 35-ish minutes, y'all. And then I have to jump into and do our hashtag racing family show with my man Chris Wheeler, who just had his birthday on our good old Twitter spaces experience. So I'm going to do 35-ish minutes now, hit pause, and decide whether I just push this live knowing I'm not going to get to half of your questions, and then do a Friday episode where we cover off the other half. Because the flip side is, I try and do the entire show at once, and it is exceptionally long, and I try not to do that to y'all unless we absolutely need to. So, probably going to do a little bit of a shorter one right now, and then most likely come back and cover off as many of the rest of your questions that I can in a part two a little bit later in the week. And so let's jump into your show with one little piece of information that I try to remember to share with you, but fail at doing sometimes. A couple years ago, we had some amazing listeners, small little group, decide they were going to band together, kind of form their own listener group. They decided to call it the Prue Day, taking the first four letters of my last name, P-R-U-E, and then the word day modeled after my favorite WWE tag team, The New Day. So the Prue Day formed, and I am told that there are hundreds now within that group. And within that group of hundreds, there's probably a smaller group of about 75, maybe 100, that are very active, get together each day, usually on Discord. I know there's a Twitter group as well, but it's a, a private thing. And whether it's talking about racing, talking about the podcast, talking about IndyCar, talking about life, um, recipes, silliness in general, some truly awesome folks, many of whom I have come to know and care for and appreciate deeply. And I mean that. Like, I've been so fortunate to have met so many great folks, members of the Prue Day, and just interact with them on a very regular basis directly. 
you'd like to join, you'd like to join kind of a, a racing family, uh, one that does a lot of bench racing, talking about racing, and just uh, some of these folks have become very close, uh, get together, communicate regularly, just one-on-one, send an email, prudayrocks at gmail.com, P-R-U-E-D-A-Y-R-O-C-K-S, prudayrocks at gmail.com. I'm told an automated response will come back to you, and they will get you added in and get to know them. Take part and have fun. Big key here, they're positive. It's warm. It's fun. Whatever toxicity and whatnot that you might come across on social media that might put you off of interacting with some racing fans, just saying. These folks, I love them. Not a member of the Prude. I'm not involved in any of their discussions, nor should I be, but uh, we just say, if you want some racing fun and positivity and love, and I guarantee you to probably make some new friends, send an email to pruderocks at gmail.com. That family's waiting to receive you. So, you know what we're going to do, since this is a couch recording episode, I got my girl Rosie, or our kit, little kit cat Rosie here snoring next to me. What do we do for couch episodes? the stupidest sound in the world that just makes me smile uh gary cornwell you opened the show asking about jack harvey how he's doing as i understand he is just fine texted with jack i think monday and yeah uh was released from the hospital after just getting some checks there and everything on his end appears to be fine uh just here for indycar says do you think the chaos we saw this past weekend in saint pete is an issue that indycar needs to address uh, as roman groshaw suggested or was this just the product of the field of credible talent making aggressive moves etc etc i think if you subtract that lap one turn three crazy pileup in the red flag i think we look at this event in a very different way. But what took place there set the tone. So when you stack the other crashes, pretty much everything a multi-car, right? Very rarely do we just have one person crash on their own. It was Renus VK into the turn four tires. Jack Harvey immediately behind, straight into him. No chance to uh, avoid. And then Kyle Kirkwood, same thing, crashing and flying over. We had Will Power and Colton Herta together. Um, we obviously had Romain Grosjean and Scott McLaughlin together. I mean, what, Kirkwood hitting Connor Daly from behind and Connor spinning and having to pit for repairs? I mean, that really bummed me out for Connor. But for the most part, yeah, there was still a lot of contact. But I think if we just subtract what happened on the opening lap, very different view of this event. We know turn three and the paving done, repaving during the offseason from turn three down to turn four. Huge problems all event long. Uh, not only a ton of crashes because of the slippery nature, but also, despite the repaving, more bumps in turn three, as folks told me. So, But if you think about what happened there in the opening lap, this wasn't a turn three crash per se, of folks getting to turn three and losing grip and bouncing off of each other. It was the most experienced, the most heralded and successful driver in IndyCar, Scott Dixon, making a mistake in the section leading up to turn three. 
hitting his best friend Felix Rosenquist by mistake. Felix limping through turn three at a slower rate of speed. And cars packing up behind him and everything going haywire from there. This was triggered by the six-time champion of champions making a very basic mistake. And a lot of others paid the price. I'm not saying that to vilify Dixon. I'm just saying this wasn't young drivers making mistakes, less talented drivers running out of talent. Um, This was just a very unfortunate chain of events that had dire consequences. Take that away. St. Pete 2023 thought of as, yeah, still a little bit messy but nothing like what we think of it right now. As for Roma's suggestion about we need to police heavier and etc., I haven't finished my cool-down lap for the event, which is sad because it's almost 5 o'clock on a Wednesday, but there's one note in there, and that is I totally agree with Roma that he did everything right, totally a victim. He left space, more than enough space, than pretty much anybody would for a car a driver to go on the inside for those to go those two to go around turn four side by side that rarely ever happens there much less happens successfully romain was not at fault for anything whatsoever full rights to be livid and pissed and you name it at mclaughlin but i can't be mad at mclaughlin i know that on cold tires sliding across the inside of the corner, back of his car hitting Romain, Romain's car then, of course, uh, going into the tires along with McLaughlin. All these things, I realize, what happened, uh, all a result of Scott. I would tell him to do the same thing again tomorrow. And there's a reason I would say that. For those of you who aren't racers, who haven't driven race cars, been part of racing teams, understand the racing mindset, culture, and such. And I'll say that in a bad way. I'm just saying, you know, uh, if you're a racer, you understand what happened. If you aren't, you might wonder, that, or you might think that was the dumbest thing ever. All McLaughlin had to do was just ease off a little bit early, break a little bit early, concede the corner to Groschamp, let his tires get up to temperature, and then go chase him down and hopefully pass him and take the win. And if he wasn't able to, well, he'd still come out of there with second place points instead of 13th place where he ended up. Totally idiotic on his part. That's exactly what he should have done. And I'll tell you, you're 100% wrong if if that's what you believe. Why? It's not what he's paid to do. Here's the, the bigger picture item to keep in mind and I said this to McLaughlin on Monday when we when we spoke had he backed off given Groschamp the corner etc etc that would have been the very first big item to lead Roger Penske and Tim Sindrick to question whether they would extend another contract to him in the future The moment you show you're willing to back off and not fight tooth and nail to the bitter end for someone like Roger Penske, it's the minute you are viewed as weak, the minute you are viewed as washed up, the minute you are viewed as less 
than what you are expected to be. I realized the outcome of this was not great. Ended up crashing out, finishing 13th, lost a ton of potential points. I get all of that. If I was his boss in a team that was or is as successful as Team Penske, I would be livid with him. If he had come home second, given up the corner, conceded that, Groshaw went on and won, I'd be happy to receive him in the pits, tell him nice drive, great points, etc., etc. I would also tell him if he ever does that again, fired. Absolutely have to go for the win. He is hired to race without mercy, without question, attack and attack and attack. And that is exactly what he did. Showing weakness to a Penske or a Cindric or a Ganassi or a, you name it, that is something that sets something in their mind saying, this isn't the person. This is not my guy. Understand that might not make total sense to everyone, but for the racers, Scott McLaughlin absolutely did what he had to do. Why don't we go to our pal James Bethay? says, kudos to Hunko's Honger Racing for a great race. Completely agree. Uh, we've got about a month-ish to the next race, so that's why I'm not rushing out a whole bunch of interviews right after St. Pete. we got some time to fill. But in there, James, definitely plan on getting on the horn with uh, Ricardo and hopefully Augustine as well, and maybe even that Callum Eilat guy. We'll uh, celebrate them a little bit more before we get to round two. Uh, Chris Kowalik and also Robbie Bergren and Eric Franklin, you guys asked similar questions. Uh, yes, hey, w- what's up with all the marbles? Wondering if the uh, the new Waiuli tires are to blame. Does the track look littered with them throughout the race? Was it a byproduct of that new rubber, etc., etc.? Mentioned this, I think, in the uh, racer mailbag this week because the same question came in from a couple of folks. Uh, you got a few things. Uh, nothing to do with the Waiuli part, right? Uh, this desert shrub renewable rubber source the Waiuli is only used in the sidewalls of the tire so the Waiuli is never touching the track uh, so no difference there in the alternate tires what you have though is track surface for a street course pretty much every street course we go to has zero grip just none <laughs> some might be a tiny bit better than others but there's no grip to the same way that you would at a Barber Motorsports Park or etc., where the track surface is hopefully higher grip, higher friction ability, gripping the tires. So what you get is you have tire manufacturers, if they're making custom tires for a street race, whether it's IndyCar with Firestone, Pirelli in Formula One, or whatever and wherever, for those street races on the city streets with surfaces that are highly polished, filled with oil and gunk and you name it all year long, you go pretty darn soft. Very, very soft because since the track surface itself doesn't have a lot of kind of jagged 
I don't mean jagged like would cut the tire, but don't have kind of jagged, spiky profile to reach up and grip the tire as it rolls across in cornering or under braking, kind of like the two, you know, one side, the track being one side of Velcro and the tire being the other, since there's nothing there and it's basically like tires running across uh, glass or something super slick, tire manufacturers tend to make their street course tires pretty darn soft. And when we get to the alternate tires, those are really soft because that's the only way you can get them to really dig in and create uh, some added grip. The byproduct of that, though, is still a lot of sliding and grinding, kind of like a cheese grater laterally as cars are going around the corners and doing their best to dig into the track surface, Chris, but it's still not that perfect kind of Velcro lock. It's a bit of a cheese grater type thing. And so that's what you get. You get big amounts of marbles, these little tiny pieces of rubber, just being ground and shredded off the carcass of the tires. And get through 50 laps, 75 laps, 100 laps, and there's a heck of a bunch of marbles there. So I don't know if there's a whole lot different uh, of a approach to take because you need those soft tires for street courses that don't really offer any grip the thing that was asked a couple times in the mailbag all related to this was so we did have a heck of a bunch of cautions right uh couldn't they have sent out the sweepers or blowers or whatever it is to try and get some of those marbles out of the way i don't know if that happened at certain sections of the track and i missed it I don't recall really seeing that take place, but that to me was was maybe the, the larger point. If you have a bunch of downtime, I think roughly 25% of the race was spent under caution. We, all, uh, we also know for sure that some of those cleanups, obviously not lap one, there was no uh, marbles to clean up then, but we know that some of the other ones that followed definitely took a few minutes here or there, if not a little bit longer to get things, uh, those, those wrecks cleaned up could potentially have been opportunities to get out there and try and improve the quality of the track surface. Uh, Louise Smith, you're asking about, uh, breaks and whether, uh, what was going on. in I think the second practice session, I had been told by someone that there was still a, or not still, a new PFC brake pad compound, and that was something that was taking teams one or two sessions to get up to speed on, and then was informed today by IndyCar that I am, was, and remain 100% wrong. So I don't know. I wish I could answer it, but I don't know. Uh, Let's see. Thomas Gross. It's great to have the season starting Say, as someone who has missed very few races over the last few years, I feel I understand what constitutes a penalty less than ever before. Goes on to say, Dixon causes a red flag early on uh, by getting into Felix, who gets into the wall, and so on and so forth. Dixon even comes on the radio and says, I thought I was clear, which indicates he knows he hit Felix. No penalty. Scotty McLaughlin's on the inside of the corner, uh, even in the corner. Slide oversteer, which causes contact with Groschamp. Penalty on Scotty Mack. Two cars do not fit side by side, and Groschamp was the overtaking car. 
I do not get it. You say, if wheel-to-wheel, unintentional contact is a penalty, I'm expecting to see 10-plus penalties per race. Can't really argue with you here, Thomas. Uh, I don't feel as if I have a truly proper grasp as to what led to every penalty. Um, We think about the willpower Colton Herta incident that led to uh, him to power being uh, sent to the back of the field for a restart. Uh, The reason listed was avoidable contact. I don't disagree with there being something a little strange about Will fighting Colton for position into turn eight, I believe it was. That is a corner that uh, I'm exaggerating, I guess, but that's a corner that has never had two Indy cars navigated side by side and come out the other end successfully. And I'm sure it's happened once, but that's a corner that says just one, right? We're not doing Noah's Ark. It's not two by two. It's, it's one. Just one car at a time, please. Will was not 100% side by side with Colton. Contact Colton in the wall. Colton no longer gets to play IndyCar for the rest of the day. Um, in and of itself, okay, if that is what happened, Will just tried to jam it down the inside out of nowhere, wasn't far enough along, contact was made, Colton pays the price. I see the reasoning behind power paying the price with that penalty. But you got to wind that back up, right? Back through turn, what, seven and six, and these two are running into each other for two and a half corners leading up to the big one that took out Colton, right? And I'll have to go back and do a slow-mo review, but it seems like Colton kind of got into the side of Will, and Will got into the side of Colton, and those two charged down, kind of still entangled a bit to turn eight, and tangled some more, and again, Colton unfortunately got the uh, the raw end of that deal. I look at everything. I look at the whole thing leading up to that, where these two were roughhousing with each other. Well... I'm not making excuses for power. I still don't think him jamming it down the inside of turn eight was the smartest thing because, again, it's kind of a one-car-only deal. But if you look at everything that preceded it, I'm struggling to say, oh, you're the bad actor here. I think the two of them kind of were equal contributors to what ended up with one person paying a a bigger price than the other. So that, to me, taking the full sequence into context, I don't know if I specifically penalize power, but, you know, again, started at the uh, back of the field, worked his way up to seventh, not exactly the end of the day. Um, The price that Grosjean paid, I understand why that led to an avoidable contact penalty for McLaughlin, considering how, again, McLaughlin was able to continue. I'm with you on the Dixon and Rosenquist one. Um, 
I don't think Dixon knew he was there uh, as much as he was there. I know that, you know, he said he thought he was by him, but I interpreted that as he thought it was a non-issue, right? When he pulled over, he truly thought there was no issue, and he was just going to take the preferred racing line through the corner and go about his business. Compared to... Uh, I kind of know he's there, and I'm going to try this. Oh, I know I hit him, but, oh, hey, I, you know, okay, I, I, I thought I was clear, but I guess I wasn't. That, to me, is a little bit of hope and prayer that didn't work out in your favor, and you're kind of going, oh, man, well, thought I was clear, but I guess not. I didn't really receive it that way. I, I received it more like he was truly surprised that that ended up happening, and he ended up hitting Felix. I interpret it as he thought he was completely clear. That might be a little bit different than a des- somewhat desperate willpower chucking it down the inside of turn eight or McLaughlin fighting on cold tires, sliding and hitting a race leader and or those two could have been race leaders and won the race. I know it's maybe the tiniest of differences, but... I don't see them in exactly the same category, Thomas. It's not saying my view is right. Just I, I, I'm pretty close with you. How's this? Had they penalized Dixon, given him a drive-through or something like that, I wouldn't have argued. Uh, I don't think anybody really would have argued. The fact that they didn't, though, doesn't leave me angry feeling like justice should have been served and how could they overlook that so again maybe uh maybe that's right maybe that's wrong but uh that's what came to my brain uh last couple of questions here zach dean asking what causes plenum fires how rare are they uh, is there anything any car teams can do to prevent them um wrote about this in depth the opening question for this week's racer mailbag would suggest reading that because I can probably, well, I would say, um, I can say for sure that this is something that if you want to get the full story, go to Racer, get the uh, the full answer there. What happens in a quick answer here, Zach, is this. The plenum, that's the carbon fiber structure looks like a, a big, wide carbon fiber loaf of bread that bolts on top of the engine. That is the sealed housing where all the boost, the compressed air being generated by the turbochargers that feed the engine, it's oxygen, it's air to mix with fuel and put into the cylinders and explode and make those pistons go up and down. That plenum is the place, that's the house, where all that turbo compression air gets fed into, into the intake trumpets. If you take that plenum off, you're going to see what you see in any kind of hot rod of these velocity stacks sitting on top uh, of the intakes there. They're pretty short, but nonetheless, that's what it is. So in that plenum, where we have this compressed air being forced in by the turbos, you also have the fuel injectors. 
These IndyCar engines have two fuel injectors per cylinder. One that sits in the port and one that's actually spraying down directly into the combustion chamber, the cylinders directly. But above that, you have those velocity stacks. You have those intake trumpets. You have the air coming in that's going to get sucked down into the motor through those six intake trumpets into those six cylinders. And in that intake trumpet down into the port, heading to the port, you have fuel being sprayed and you create that fuel mixture. The air and fuel mix. Valve opens. The intake valves open. That air-fuel mixture goes into the combustion chamber. Valves close. Spark gets sent in there and kaboom! So this is happening a zillion times per second. Quick note, there's always fuel and air mixing in that plenum. So it's always there, right? Always got the oxygen, the air being pumped in, and you've got that fuel spraying as well above the combustion chambers. So there's always fuel and oxygen up there. So it's you might think, oh my goodness, isn't it always under threat of a fire breaking out in the plenum? Well, potentially, but that's not what's supposed to happen. So when you do have a plenum fire, like Pato experienced, it means that something down below, something fiery or sparky, managed to sneak above the combustion chamber for a split nanosecond and ignite that fuel and air that is sitting in the plenum. So there are a lot of different ways this can happen. There's no single one, single way that happens all the time that causes it, but an example wrote about in the mailbag. Let's say there's a little bit of a misfire with the engine uh, in one of those zillion explosions and mixings and whatnot that happen every second. Let's say there's just a quick little misfire and the fuel being sprayed into the combustion chamber doesn't fully ignite, right? There's basically some uh, unburnt fuel left that then the exhaust valves open and that gets chucked out of the combustion chamber. Well, that liquid, that unburnt liquid fuel would then ignite because the exhausts are super red hot and you would just get a temporary flame of that unburnt fuel in the exhaust for, again, a super brief amount of time. Well, if you've got those exhaust valves and intake valves opening and closing again at a zillion miles an hour per second, if you've got this burning flame for a second, half second, whatever long, going on in the exhaust, and exhaust valve opens and is supposed to be expelling this burnt air, this burnt fuel, but there's still a fire going on for a second, could a little bit of that flame sneak back in to the combustion chamber? It could. And when the intake valve opens to send the next allotment of air and fuel in to be combusted and blown up, could that flame continue and sneak up into the plenum again for just a nanosecond? It absolutely could. And so through this little thing that didn't work exactly perfectly 
this little misfire, this little bit of unspent, unburnt fuel catches fire, valves open, and a little bit of flame sneaks back in where it shouldn't be. You've got this plenum always full of air, always mixing with fuel where you go, hey, wait a minute, we just had something to make all this stuff combust up top take place. Well, then what happens? That air and fuel that was mixing and waiting to go down into the six cylinders was just burnt up. And so the motor stumbles because the intake valves open, waiting for a mixture of air and fuel. And for that quick combustion cycle, doesn't have anything. That got burnt up. So you need to draw in more air after that fire burns itself out again, pretty much within a second or less. And you just need to start that normal cycle over again where you get more oxygen in, more fuel is sprayed since what was just there has gone up in flames and not gone down into the motor to make horsepower. You got to wait. And drivers are trained how to deal with it, how to cycle through this and so on. Um, And that's why you had with Pato about this one second delay where we had this oddity happen, fire take place in a for a second in the plenum, the motor didn't get what it was needing for air and fuel to combust. It stumbled because it, again, had couldn't take a breath and do all the kaboomy stuff that it wanted to. And once that cycled through and the motor picked back up again, he was fine. Raced to the end of the, uh, end of the event without issues. Unfortunately, he had Marcus Erickson about half a second behind him. And with a one-second stumble and a guy who's half a second behind you, you end up losing the lead. So that's that, my friend. I am at the point where I need to stop. And I think what I'm going to do is hit pause here. Because we're at about 35 minutes. to try and get us out to about 45, maybe 50 And then, like I said, we'll uh, pick up the rest of the questions, hopefully, on Friday. So, I'm going to hit pause. Actually, you know, I lied. I'm going to (laughs) hit... And then I'm going to hit pause here. Rosie is looking at me, wondering why uh, I'm making stupider sounds than usual. And uh, I'm going to hit pause, and I'll be back here after a little Hashtag Racing Family show is in the books and we're back and by we i mean me apologize speaking in i don't know first third ninth person something uh hey guess what (laughs) sorry i couldn't resist uh brian dywert and i feel like i just murdered your last name but hey that's what i do mp two questions first how badly does it hurt teams like meyer shank and aj foyt racing to have your entire team wiped out before the completion of the first lap, say the money to the to repair the cars, the loss of driver race day experience, and the lack of race data must be a huge loss to all. You nailed everything. Might have to offer there. If we think about the AJ Foyt Racing team to begin with, decent qualifying, right, for uh, Santino. I think he started 17th or something like that, and I could be totally wrong. I apologize, but had a decent qualifying 
street racing. I mean, we go to a couple of these per year, right? Wouldn't be a bad thing to get ahead there. And indeed, they came away with zero quality race bits of knowledge, in particular the alternate tires and the knowledge gained there that they could in theory apply to other street circuits. Uh, Benjamin Peterson, error prone for sure, made a number of mistakes throughout the weekend before we got to the race. Not sure why he was the one driver mashing the throttle uh, as the last person basically to arrive on the scene as well, but uh, boy, that's a hundred laps of racing he really could have used. So, although he took part in every aspect of the weekend leading up to the race, he heads to Texas as a rookie without some quality knowledge of what it's like to go wheel to wheel with this full field. Obviously, an oval is a different race than a street course. Just saying, would have been great for him to get a feel of what it's like fighting with some of the drivers or being passed by some of the drivers um yeah think about santino not worried there but definitely missed the kind of feedback he could have given the team uh in the race on the shank side i mean i think they're going to be fine the Foyt team is the one in the big knowledge deficit. Two brand new drivers, new engineering structure, new, new, new. Uh, that hurt for them. For the Shank team, it hurts from a championship standpoint, but uh, they'll be fine otherwise. Um, why don't we throw this in? Because it's related. Uh, have news today about the Meyer Shank racing team being caught cheating. Uh, there's no other description than cheating, intentionally circumvening the rules, circumventing the rules, cheating, winning the Rolex 24 at Daytona, running the car with lower tire pressures than allowed. All the other teams told me, GTP teams told me, we want to do that. We wish we could. Cars don't feel amazing at these higher minimum tire pressures uh, that were required to run no lower than that number. If only we could go down a couple of PSI, really the cars would feel so much better, the tires would come alive, etc. But they didn't because it's illegal. Uh, the Shank team decided to do that, then cheated the data coming off the car and going across telemetry so when it arrived an IMSA's doorstep every second of the race. Everything looked perfectly fine when it wasn't. Why am I mentioning this on our Week in IndyCar show? If I am IndyCar Technical Director Kevin Rocket Blanche, if I'm IndyCar President Jay Fry, if I'm IndyCar Series owner Roger Penske, if I'm anybody in a position of power there, I am now saying, huh, this wasn't like, oh, oops, we uh, the car ran three pounds underweight, uh, and yeah, that's, that's legal, but, you know, it wasn't some egregious thing, and oops, we just had a slight miscalculation. This is going into the race, and we have to assume the sessions prior to the race, intentionally manipulating data to give a false read, a legal read to IMSA 
so you can intentionally cheat and run lower tire pressures. This is getting into software data manipulation. This is this is not an oops. <laughs> the the maximum width of the car is whatever millimeters, and it's an extra one millimeter wide. Oops, sorry. That like that's a mistake. This is an actual plan conceived and executed to cheat and then gain an advantage and they cheated and gained an advantage and won the Rolex 24 Daytona IMSA's biggest race their Super Bowl their Daytona 500 their Indy 500 if I'm IndyCar I am salivating at the idea of those cars coming across the tech pad at Texas and Long Beach and wherever else. And I'm not saying this in a happy way or, or gleeful, joyful way, but let's be honest here. If IndyCar and the rest of us just learned today that a team that competes in its series that won a this massive race to great fanfare did it through intentional like really deep level cheating i am no longer treating the cars coming across the indycar tech pad or any other series they might compete in in the same old normal way if devlin de francesco's car rolled across or joseph newgardens or anybody else i'm just making up a number here but if it takes 15 minutes, 20 minutes for a pretty thorough technical inspection to take place, pre-qualifying, pre-race, pre-whatever, buckle in. You're going to be here for an hour. You're going to be here for two. Uh, we might not have you on the tech pad. We might go around the corner here and let, let just everything, take everything apart, tear everything apart. Are the Meyershank Racing Indy cars illegal in any way? I have no idea. I would like to believe they are not and that they are perfectly above board. No reason to believe anything is out of sorts with their cars. But man, did you just give IndyCar reason to no longer believe you should be treated equally when it comes to technical inspection. Let's go hardcore and they can do that with any car at any point in time don't get me wrong they can say you know what i don't know why but we we just want to <coughs> right it's the uh <coughs> nope you're not just going through the little uh metal detector and scanner you're getting the full body full body pat down and you're coming over into the little room here and oh boy we're we're, we're putting on the gloves right you know most most times you just sail right through and off you go in your life, but sometimes oh, you get the person going, oh, come here, and all of a sudden you're detoured for an hour plus, and everything is being inspected. If IndyCar were to do that, no one should complain, because this question's now been raised. If you're willing to go to those levels there, what, are you, what might you be doing over here? Uh, I feel so bad for all of the fine people who work at that team, um yeah wow anyways 
Let's get on to uh, the rest of your question here, Brian. You say, second, how about that Hunkos-Hollinger team? Their amazing results <coughs> of 5th and 12th. So, you know, many will say they were helped by half the field crashing, but those are good results regardless. Uh, does a little early season success help spring them through the rest of 2023, or should we discount uh, what took place with them having a lucky race? We saw the potential in particular with uh, good old Kaloum at spring training here, Brian, right? Quick like a bunny. Not a surprise. And here we are at St. Pete, and they were quick yet again. Augustine, quick again, right? Uh, for his level of experience, which is none, <laughs> doing his first ever open wheel race, to my knowledge, right? Uh, phenomenal. Yes, without a doubt, attrition helped, but the cars had to be fast enough. He had to be fast enough, that being Callum, to finish right behind Rossi. <laughs> I mean, so yeah remove some faster cars that might have separated him from a Marcus or a Pato or a whomever. But even if they finished 10th or 12th, I'd still be really impressed because if you can start off the season that way, last year it was a little more sporadic. We knew the potential was there. They just struggled to latch onto it on a consistent basis. Even if Callum finished 12th and Augustine was 20th. I'd still be over the moon because it tells us right out of the gates. They're in a more competitive place. And if they can be there, thereabouts, that's going to be a pretty phenomenal year. So we talk about momentum. If we were going straight to Barber, straight to Long Beach, I'd probably lean in a yes direction fact that Callum will be doing, what, his sixth ever oval race at Texas? Augustine will be doing his first ever? Can't drag the positive awesomeness from St. Pete over to Texas with any expectations of it having an impact or whatever else. But at least the team knows, hey, we got something good. We can do some special things this year. Texas, though, being a little bit of an outlier. But yeah, when we get to Long Beach, Barber, etc., um, I expect to see some more good stuff. Uh, Chad Donahoe, great to see you, by the way. Last weekend, Chad, you mentioned that as well. Good to see you at St. Pete. Who was the biggest surprise? New face in the paddock in that talented IndyCar roster. I mean, I, I am a little bit compelled to say Augustine, but if you read anything that I wrote, heard anything that I said especially coming out of spring training, I wasn't surprised with him <laughs> embarrassing some folks with years of USF championships presented by Cooper Tires experience, Indy Lights experience presented by Cooper Tires. That wasn't officially what it was, but I'll just go with that because they were on Coopers through last season. Um, I'm just saying, man, there were... A number of drivers who qualified behind Augustine and who also finished behind him, who, yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> pretty amazing. But other than that, let's see, I know he had a terrible race and qualifying certainly did not give him what he'd hoped, but 
I thought Devlin DeFrancesco showed continued growth in, in some of the sessions prior to that. I uh, was happy for him. Um, I think the easy one, and I, I, I think we're going to be talking about this every time he straps in this year, Marcus Armstrong, right? This kid wasn't F2 champion caliber, right? At least through his pretty decent time there, we hadn't seen that being demonstrated. Also got to be fair, I wouldn't say that he was ever in the best team, should have won the title, but just didn't deliver. That that not the case by any means. But just saying... I don't know if, if Armstrong showed us in his time in F2 that he was a F2 champion in waiting, but he definitely showed us that he was dang good, race winner, skilled, not a crasher, not a knucklehead, just right a really high-quality, high-caliber guy to come out of F2. And we're seeing that exact thing here, right? Ended up finishing 12th. Uh, I apologize. Ended up finishing 11th uh, in the race. Pretty amazing for him. And that's despite getting a flat tire and losing time. He would have finished higher up for sure. So I think he's the one who we saw how, how quick he was. Sorry, I'm dealing with some hiccups here. How quick he was in spring training. I just got to believe that this kid who... Uh, is coming here with everything to learn. I think he's going to have us kind of perking up pretty often, Chad, going, can't wait to see what you're going to do with the next one. Um, let me get to the last question or two here, and then I'll uh, call time on this episode. Steve Garbasiak. Say, any thoughts on whether the notable improvements in practice and qualifying times at Andretti are due to the big turnover in drivers and staff? And perhaps some addition by subtraction. No, this was just a lot of really smart people in the engineering R&D side, all led by old pal Eric Bretzman. This was Andretti knowing their deficiencies and attacking them aggressively, putting a lot of money into finding more single lap speed. Rob Edwards, chief operating officer, also told me, uh, and this will be in the next issue of Racer, um, they looked at processes, too. Said, hey, you know, this is just one little example, and I, I was impressed by it. Also, maybe, I don't know if I put this in the story, but had myself asking, maybe this could have been something done a little bit earlier, but hindsight, 2020 said, you know, there's a trillion pieces of information that we capture, right? Data about every little thing, whether it's suspension and arrow and engine and this and that and blah, and all the zillions of math channels that they write to take the data and quantify this and add a value to that and just write. It is, <laughs> it's a crushing amount of information being generated by the car every time it hits the track. And so the team ends up with ziggle, triggle, yiggle bites of data to try and parse through 
and use that to their advantage, right? It's not just the old school, well, here's the wheel speed information that tells you how fast the car was going at, all throughout the lap. And here's when the driver is braking and how much. And here's how much they turn the steering wheel. Uh, it's, again, just data overload to the millionth power. And so within all that data, Steve, you say, well, in theory, I've got all the magical information to grasp every aspect about what the car is doing, what the driver's doing. The driver is saying in this corner, this type of corner at this speed, at this phase of the corner, the car's doing this thing that I don't like, and how can we improve that? And over here, we're seeing that we might be faster than others, but over here, we're slower, and how can we improve all these things? Well, you've got a zillion pieces of information to try and come to solutions, answers, find directions and improve yourself for the next session. Rob said, big part of what we did process-wise was trying to ingest all this stuff and make changes in, so do we try and really process and quantify this zillion, trillion zigabytes of whatever? Or do we do a little bit more filtering and weeding out of stuff, hey, could we delve into this area and could it give us some tiny little advantage? Maybe, but how much time is that going to take? How much effort, how many man, woman, and non-binary hours are going to be consumed? Like, okay, again, there's so many things we could do to try and find speed through data, but how do we narrow that to the most valuable lanes of information? and really try and expedite getting to that. And if we simplify and strain and filter out all of this crazy amount that we have coming in, maybe we could get to solutions faster, right? Just another little thing just to, to close on this, Steve. So there are some teams we have seen where you go, oh, hey, well, you kind of started the weekend off a little slower than you expected. And yeah, you made a couple gains in the next session, but not a huge amount. Qualifying, since you started off the weekend a little, you started off the weekend slow, and you've made some gains. By qualifying, you might have been even a little bit better, but still, you end up qualifying 13th instead of what you'd hoped would have been on pole or third or fourth. Maybe by pre-race warm-up, you finally get the setup right. Great you're still starting 13th and you got a lot of work to do. What does that usually mean? Does it mean the team's lost? Uh, they've got all the information to try and figure out what's right and what's wrong. But what if you've got so much to digest that the timeline, the arc of getting from that slower start to the place you really wanted to be from the beginning, what if that takes... A day and a half, a two days, you know, what if it takes way too much time to finally parse and get? Because and, keep in mind, at the end of that first session, great, tons of effort. But then you make some changes, you go do that second session, and guess what? Another avalanche of information. You could see how it could take a while for some teams to finally get to where they want to be, but it's so late in the weekend and their starting position is poor enough to where 
uh, some miracles are going to be required in the race for you to have a really good result. Well, what if we change our approach and really try and simplify, apply a bit of, you know, kind of noise canceling feature to say, you know what? We might have a million pieces of information to look through, but there's probably five or ten areas that are really going to continually reap the biggest results. Why don't we save the 990 whatever thousands of data options? Why don't we narrow it down seriously and severely? And if there's a specific problem that we're having that's maybe a little bit out of those limited number of, of lanes we're looking through and evaluating and simulating and whatnot, cool, we can do that. But that was one big area, he said, process-wise, that they've adjusted. And so if you look at the fact that they've been able to find faster single-lap qualifying-type pace helping them to qualify, put three cars in the top five. Roma obviously was in a very special place in the race, Steve, on those alternate tires, was able to go so fast. And if you looked at his onboard footage or just even the external footage, you know, from the, the cameras around the track, he was not abusing the car, was not having to do, do anything harsh with the car to uh, make speed. It came very easily, and therefore... Those alternate tires that his teammate Colton Herta and Kyle Kirkwood really fell out of love with, basically burned up prematurely, was not an issue for Romain in any way. So do they still have a little bit of work to do on full stint pace to keep the alternates alive and happy? Based on St. Pete, I'd say the answer is yes. But yeah, uh, they're moving in the right direction here. Uh, no, to my knowledge, key personnel changes to uh, really make this happen. I know that one uh, veteran damper person uh, left the team, and uh, but yeah, um, I think they're just getting a lot more out of the vast majority of who they have and what they have and uh, made some pretty smart process changes. Uh, we're going to close here this episode with our dear pal Jeremy Davis, the world's A number one, Scott Dixon, Chip Ganassi racing fan. You say, any 2024 driver silly season rumors going around yet, like we did last year at St. Pete? He says, so glad the IndyCar season is back. And to see the Iceman's having a great start to the season with the Wolfpack number nine team and all of Team Ganassi with three exclamation points. Jeremy, you kill me with the three exclamation points. I love it. Um... <clears throat> No, not really. And I say that because we know the landscape. Not so much a case of what could happen, what might happen. I think we are pretty straightforward with who is uh, a free agent and who could be acquired, who will probably be looking for work. So there's still plenty of answers, but in terms of like who's on the market, what's going around, we know without a shadow of a doubt, Alex Pillow will be headed 
to Arrow McLaren. Unless Arrow McLaren decides to randomly expand to four cars, which I haven't heard about yet. I don't think they will. Um, Felix Rosenquist will be looking for work. Um, Chip Ganassi Racing could have one to two vacancies, right? Um, we know that Marcus Erickson's in a contract year. Um, what exactly is going to happen uh, in terms of filling the 10 car? I, if, Unless something changes, I'm pretty confident in saying Chip Ganassi Racing absolutely wants Robert Schwartzman, who tested for them. Ferrari Driver Academy, F1 test driver, reserve driver, Robert Schwartzman. Um, pretty confident that unless Ferrari says no or he decides to uh, not want to come race IndyCar, that's the kid I keep hearing uh, would they love to have uh, to drop into that 10 car next year. Um, what happens with the 11 car? Armstrong and Sato. Is this Takuma's farewell season? I don't know. Truly don't know. Um, what's going to happen with Armstrong? Will he return? I hope. If so, will he go full-time? Again, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely some evolution that could happen at Chip Ganassi Racing, but none of that a, 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 should be a surprise. Andretti Autosport? Could definitely be some evolution there. I can't think of any scenario where Devlin returns. He's in the second of a two-year contract. Some efforts attempted during the summer, unsuccessful to see if the team could move him already over to Dale Coin Racing. Didn't go anywhere, but um, I don't expect Devlin to be back. Again, that's not said in a critical way with him. The team just wants to try and stack themselves with all champions or, and or big race winners and whatnot. Grosjean, if he keeps performing like he did at St. Pete, I think he will get a contract extension. But if things falter, uh, I think he's going to be looking for work as well. Just scrolling down the list here in front of me. Uh, David Malukas, question mark, right? Uh, father could have an interest in starting his own team would his would his son come drive for him if that were to happen for 2024 don't know i know the ganassi team has indeed expressed some interest in him could malukas be a eight car 10 car 11 car again who knows marcus stays uh armstrong stay again don't know but i'm just saying there's could be a variety of options. Malukas in the final year of a two-year contract with Dale Coyne Racing. So does he stay and extend? Ganassi, his dad's team, if his dad develops. Um, just looking down here. I think Renus, yeah, is out of contract at the end of the year. Of the various openings and whatnot, could he be in play there? If he has a strong season, I definitely think he could. I don't know if Callum is available at the end of the year, um, believe we read last year, signed to a multi-year or options were taken up. And, you know, I don't genuinely know the details of his contract. Does uh, the Hunkos Hollinger team have multiple options on him year by year that they could take up? Or could he go again? I don't know. If he keeps performing like he did, I bet you some teams are going to be calling trying to get a hold of him. Both Meyer Shank Racing drivers... 
Elio and Simon are in the final years of their contracts. Elio, I think, is going to have to do some extraordinary things to hold on to that seat. Simon, I think he's, despite this terrible start to the season, I think he and his race engineer, Garrett, are going to be doing some pretty good work this year, so I think he's going to be okay. But if not, uh, there could certainly be evolution and drivers there. Tom Blomkvist, obviously, being someone in the wings who I think is going to drop into that 06 car that Elio's in, unless Elio wins the Indy 500 or does some other big stuff to uh, get another contract. Rahel Letterman Lanigan Racing, Jack Harvey in the final year of his two-year contract. I think he's going to end up having a good year, but if he doesn't, I don't think the team will be bashful in pursuing some of the drivers I named or looking to F2 again for some options there. So I don't know if Power, uh, I think Power has a new contract. Um, I don't think any of the Penske drivers are, are going to be available. So, But regardless, Jeremy, I just rattled off a bunch of names of people who potentially could be looking for new teams, whether it's because their current team won't want to have them back. Another team will want to hire them. <clears throat> um, or, you know, could someone start a team and want to have your name on the car on the team that also kind of has your name on it? Again, there's a lot of options here. So I don't know the exact number of names that I mentioned, Jeremy, but I feel like it's what, 30% of the field, maybe? Who knows if it's more? Um, all these things are kind of known coming into the season. Um, I'm not aware of any teams looking to really expand next season, um, but that could absolutely change. So keep you posted. Um, got a text from Sage Karam I need to reply to, asking if I know of any potential Indy 500 seats or teams that could be out there. I uh, need to get back to them because I am aware of one. Um, but anyways, uh, there is one other team that I know of that might be trying to come into IndyCar for the first time. So not one that's already there like HMD and just wanting to spin off to their own deal, but an actual new team that uh, might be trying to uh, come in. So yeah, there is some cool stuff going on, Jeremy, that we know about. And I would say more than anything, totally different from last year at this exact time. None of what I can think of is pressing like some of the things that were happening at St. Pete last year. So I think, this is famous last words, of course, I think we're going to have a silly season that kicks off, you know, is that month of May? Uh, is it June? We'll see. Um, but I don't think we're going to have a crazy early kickoff like we did last season. And if that's the case, <sighs> I will be perfectly fine with it. All right, y'all went a little longer than expected, but that's okay. Uh, love y'all love everything you sent in. Appreciate the time you've taken to help make the show what it is for, for five years now, six, I don't know. Uh, I'm losing track, but, um, Look forward to getting back to you here shortly, hopefully on Friday. Get to the rest of your questions. All then brought to you by 
Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. And once again, if you want to join a uh, cool new racing family, make some new friends, talk about IndyCar and other forms of racing and other things you might have passions for, send that email, prudayrocks, P-R-U-E-D-A-Y-R-O-C-K-S, at gmail.com.